Please turn with me once again to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, if you were here last week, you know that we detoured from Timothy. But we're back there today. Uh, many of you are familiar with the pollster Barna, the, one of the leading, if not the leading pollster in the United States. Uh, he recently announced uh, through his um, polling system that there is an increasingly more difficult, well, let me put it this way, it is getting more difficult to find mature young Christian men who want to pastor churches in America. It's becoming increasingly more difficult to find young Christian pastors who are mature and able to pastor churches. Um, Now, uh, our seminaries are not necessarily full here in the United States, but what we are finding is that many of our seminarians are not necessarily Americans. They are foreigners. And some of them will stay behind in the United States and they will pastor American churches. But really, the hope is to send them back to their homes, right? And, and pastor churches there, churches that are in need of pastors in their foreign land. What's going to happen here? Who's going to replace aging pastors? Who? But even more disconcerting for me is what Barna listed regarding the unchurched and what now is being referred to as the de-churched. The unchurched and the de-churched. Barna studies show that 73% of Americans claim to be Christians. That's a high number, right? That's nearly three-quarters of All Americans claim to be Christian. But of all those Christians, only 38% of them are churched. Only 38% of all these Christians go to church. And of that 73%, 34% of them, that's a significant number, are de-churched. De-churched. What does de-churched mean? It means that at one point, that person was very active churchgoer, but now has not attended a church service in at least six months. De-churched. Uh, some are even going as far as calling themselves deconverted. That's actually a trend in evangelicalism. In the last ten years, reports Barna. More people have become churchless in America than live in Australia or in Canada. More people in America have become de-churched than the population of Australia or Canada. In fact, what we see here is that the younger the person is, the less likely he or she is to attend church. And the greater number of these de-churched individuals are unmarried, they're white, and mostly males. It's a shame. It's heartbreaking. Now, the good side to this report, if there is a good side, I would say this. There seems to be a weaning of cultural Christianity. What I mean is, fewer and fewer people who are just Christian by culture, because this is what we do, this is what mom and dad told me I should do, This is what we do on Sunday. But have no real faith in Christ? They are dropping out. 
because there's no need to practice something they don't necessarily believe in. So, so that's, I suppose, a good thing. I would rather still see them in church under the proclamation of the gospel. But what is being left behind then are true believers. You know, I rest well at night. When I, even after reading these statistics, I rest well at night because the Bible says that Christ is going to build his church. Right? The church of Christ will prevail. That's what the Bible says. And so no matter what statistics we read, no matter what is happening governmental-wise or uh, where we see the church declining and uh, the few places we see it expanding uh, here in the States, I know Christ is going to build his church. And so I sleep well, but it's still unfortunate. And it's unfortunate because there are people who are actually cheating themselves of the benefit of being a part of what Christ is doing. They're cheating themselves of being a part of the bride of Christ, the church. This is the way I see it. I think you'll agree. If God's plan, if God's scheme of things, if God's hand is in something, it only makes sense to be a part of it. It only makes sense to be a part of wherever God is. 1 Peter 2.9 But you were a chosen race. Referring here to the church. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for his own possession. Who? The church of Christ. You. Us. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And my friends, if that does not stir you, then you need to take a look at your spiritual pulse and see if you have any. That you would be a part of the household of God so that you would be able to extol his excellencies, the one who took you out of darkness and placed you into light. Well, as we turn to our study in 1 Timothy, I want you to note that God's church runs on servants. The church of Christ runs on servants. The role of the church, as you all know, is to broadcast the reality of Jesus Christ. That's what we're about. We are supposed to be just letting people know who Jesus Christ is, who he is, what he has done, that is, that he has died for your sins, he rose again, he ascended on high, that he's coming back, and that he is in a business of saving, redeeming souls the souls of those people who will literally place their faith in him and say, Lord, take my life. I want to be yours. That's our job. And then, and by the way, we call that evangelism, right? Evangel meaning good news. This is good news. Evangelism is proclamation of that good news. And then, through spiritual care, what the church is supposed to do is to take Christians to the next, to the next step. And equip them to serve the Lord according to how God enables them. Each one of us are very different, and so God enables us in different ways. Some people will have a speaking ministry, and they will be spiritual leaders. They, they will teach the Word of God. Others will have a serving ministry, whereby you will physically help where the needs abound. Not everybody 
will do both. Very few people will do both, but all of us can do one or the other by God's enabling. So that together we will extol the name of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 2.9. You may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The church runs on God-transformed, Holy Spirit-enabled people. That's what we need. You know, look at it this way. The church is like a beautiful canvas where God is painting. But it's an old canvas. And God is able to take that old canvas and transform it and make this beautiful painting using very simple colors. That's the church. A few years ago, my wife and I were not far away from here, just up the road, at an estate sale. That's when we still had room in our house to put anything in in it. Now I say to my wife, no more, no more. There's no more room, right? And and there was a painting hanging over a mantle. And and I thought it was a beautiful painting. My wife agreed, and we said, oh, how much? And the owner said, well, that's $80,000. I'm like, oh, we're not buying this one. (laughs) And, And so we looked at it and said, do you think you could make a print of that for us? And they said, yes. And we wanted that painting for the church foyer. It's there now. It's a painting of our community. It's right up the road. And so they finally were able to make that print for us. Very kind. Would you agree? However, when they delivered the print, there was a dime-sized spot where, for some reason, the printer skipped. Just a little circle in the top right corner. And they gave it to us and said, $100. Say, well, you really don't want it. Why not? Because, well, there's a spot there. They said, it's only a dime size. Maybe you could fill it in. I said, maybe I can. But we don't want it. Why? Because it's defective. We want one that looks just like the real thing. We want a real picture, a completed picture. It was defective without that one spot filled in. My friends, well, by the way, they did do it again, and it's hanging in a foyer. My friends, the church is like a painting. God is painting. We are part of that painting. Maybe we are just that dime-sized spot in the corner. But without us, without what we add to the kingdom of God as servants of God the painting becomes defective. It becomes incomplete. And so we have a job of fulfilling our responsibility within the kingdom of God to be the people of God as best as we can to extol the greatness of God, to fulfill his commandments, to live as godly people in a broken world, to extol him and lift up his name and proclaim him to anyone who would listen. And even to those who don't want to listen, to proclaim him. That's our duty. Uh, That is our job as a church. You, my friends, we together are essential pigments in the canvas of God. It does matter. You do matter. To help the church function, the Bible gives to us 
the office of pastor, elder, and the function of the deacon. And we just take a look at Acts chapter 6, and I'll refer to it in a few moments. But notice here now in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy 3. I'll read it to you, and then you'll see that the qualifications of a deacon are very similar to the qualifications of an elder. It reads this way, chapter 3, verse 1, rather, um, verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And I'm sure that if you've been reading along with me through 1 Timothy, you see the parallels uh, between the elder and the deacon very clearly. And the reason why there is this parallel is because the role of the deacon is compatible to that of the elder. Now, within the church, we do not have a system like we have in our Congress, where you have the Senate and the House, and one keeps the other in check. That's not the case here at all. But compatible in that both are leading the household of God. You have elders, pastors, sometimes referred to as overseers, and then you have the function of deacons. And because they are both required for leading the church, the qualifications are naturally compatible one to the other. Both are to hold fast to the truth. Uh, both are to be tested be both at home and in public. Uh, they are compatible in that both serve the church of Jesus Christ. However, the diaconate, maybe you noticed, this list here does not mention any duties. Having read that, you wonder, so what does the deacon do? All we read here is what the deacon is to be like. But there are no duties listed. Uh, earlier in that same chapter, we saw that elders are supposed to be able to teach the word of God. But what are deacons supposed to do? What's their job description? Unless, of course, you consider the word itself, deacon. It comes from the Greek word diakonos, which means servant. Servant. So the title actually describes the function. The deacon is to serve. That's his job. The elder supervises the spiritual aspect of church ministry. The deacon supervises the material aspects of the church. Now, you might find this interesting, I hope so, because I'm going to tell you, uh, is the, the word diakonos is a gender-common word. In other words, whether you're referring to female or male, it's the same word in the masculine. Diakonos, that's a masculine word. And so there's no feminine word for deacon. 
Of course, in English we have one. It's called deaconess. But in the original Greek here, no, it's all in the masculine. We see one example of this in Romans 16.1. It reads this way, right at the end of the book of Romans. Last chapter, first verse, it reads, I commend you, our sister Phoebe, feminine, a servant, or diakonos, masculine, in the church. The distinction between elders and deacons is, I think, best laid out for us in Acts chapter 6, which we read earlier this morning. Those serving in the office of elder or pastor were to avoid getting caught up in the daily physical chores of church ministry. In particular, as you saw here in Acts chapter 6, they were supposed to avoid getting involved in feeding widows, taking care of the ongoing physical needs of the congregation. If there was plumbing involved, it would have said, and they shouldn't be fixing the plumbing. The physical needs of the congregation. Rather, elders, what we see here in Acts chapter 6, they were to spend time in prayer and in the ministry of the word of God. Studying and teaching the word of God. So, somebody asked me recently, uh, what do I do during the day? And, and I said, see those binoculars? <laughs> I spend a lot of time looking out the window. Sounds nice, right? I spend a lot of time looking out the windows because I'm thinking. I'm reading, thinking, meditating on the word of God so that I could better teach you the word of God. The deacons were then to take care of the physical needs so that the elders could take care of the spiritual needs. Uh, What we see here in Acts chapter 6 is that the number of people, the number of widows who needed food was becoming so great that the elders could not keep up. And so they established a new function within the church. And in chapter 6 of Acts verse 3, we see that they select seven men who would carry out this task. And look, these men were to be of good reputation, full of the Spirit of God, and possess godly wisdom. So these weren't just men who were very good at helping people, but rather these were good Christian men. Men who sought to live after Christ. These men would later be referred to as the seven, and of course the disciples were referred to as the twelve. You see the same distinction again later on in Acts chapter 21, verse 8. We see that we come across there a man by the name of Philip, who was one of the original seven selected to serve. Go to Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul introduces himself and greets the church. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, along with the overseers and deacons of the church. Well, to be selected... As a leader in God's household, who either oversees the spiritual aspects or here the physical aspects of the church, there are certain required characteristics, certain traits that you should possess. Now let me remind you that these traits are not just for those who are leading the church of God. These are traits that we should all embrace. These are traits that we should all look for. Let me suggest to this, to those of you who are fathers of girls, 
these are the traits you want her to marry. So, wow, I, I, I know my, my daughter found a good man because he's this. These are the traits that we look for in the people we sign contracts with, we make deals with. These are the traits of people we want to befriend and surround us. These are traits that every one of us should try to be instilling, producing through the Holy Spirit in ourselves. So so please don't walk away saying, well, I guess that's not me because I'm never going to be one of these things. These qualities will never be a description of me. No, it should be. It should be. The world around us will be much better if you become this. However, it is essential if this person is going to be a deacon. So we have here qualifications beginning at verse 8. And the first one has to do with the personal character of the individual. And I jotted down four D words, D as in Daniel, words, to help us better understand or remember what these characteristics are. And if you look at verse 8, you see it. First of all, the deacon is to be dignified. He must be dignified. Likewise, right? It says, just like the elders were to be dignified, so the deacon is to be dignified. And I find this to be a very interesting word because we don't have an exact English translation. Dignified is true, but it's more than just dignified. The word also carries a sense of gravity or seriousness. So it's saying here that the deacon is to be a person who is, yes, worthy of respect, dignified, but also serious in purpose, a person who is respectable in conduct. And we see that same requirement, if you go back to verse 4, it says the pastor should be that too. But if you go back to chapter 2, verse 2, it says that every Christian should be dignified. So it's not just for me, not just for Kevin, it's for you too. And he is to be a person who is not double-tongued, double-tongued. A double-tongued person is a person who says one thing to one person and another thing to another person. Uh, That person should be sincere, he should be a person who is trustworthy. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. He comes across one character uh, whose, uh, whose name is Parson Mr. Two-Tongues. Parson Mr. Two-Tongues. Um, that should not be us. It should not be the pastor. It should not be the deacon. It should not be you. Uh, in other words, the, the, the deacon is to be a sincere person. A sincere person. And he's not to be a drunkard. That's D word number three. He's not to be a drunkard. Here we see... Uh, verse 8, that he is not to be addicted to much wine. Not addicted to too much wine. Uh, in other words, he is to be a sober person, a temperate person, controlled when it comes to drinking. Uh, his mind should not be preoccupied with liquor. Uh, of course, here it refers to wine. That was the common drink in a day and age where there was no refrigeration. Alcohol would preserve that grape juice much, much longer. But my friends, any alcoholic beverage would be included in this 
in this uh, line, uh, see the same thing in verse 3. Uh, imagine a drunken deacon coming to your house. I came here to fix your plumbing. You know? He is not to be a drunkard. Now, the, the fourth one is dishonest, but before we get to that fourth one, let, let me just say something about not a drunkard. You'll notice that of all these four D words, this one here, the drinking issue, actual has actual physiological ability to control you. Whereas being dignified or double-tongued or dishonest, you control that. You decide whether or not you're going to be dishonest. You decide whether or not you're going to be uh, double-tongued or, or, or undignified. With every decision, every choice you make, you decide whether or not that's going to be you. You control that. However, when it comes to alcohol, you do not control it. It masters you. It controls you. You don't become a drunkard willingly. You may get drunk willingly. You don't become a drunkard willingly. It, little by little, controls you. And foolish is the person who says, oh, no, not me. If anyone is telling you, hey, slow down on drink, you're drinking too much lately, I would take that advice. That person cares enough to slow you down because you're developing a problem. It is mastering you. You are not mastering it. I know that's hard to admit, but it's essential that you begin by realizing it's mastering me. It's foolish to think that we can master alcohol. Um, it's hard to admit that I'm an alcoholic but it is the first step the desire for drinking does not allow you to admit it but you have to overcome it it will master you the fourth one, the fourth D word here is dishonest Dishonest. It actually comes from a Greek compound word which means shameful gain. Dishonest. Uh, that would be a swindler, a person who's greedy, um, a person who's not satisfied or content, uh, always wanting more, and therefore I'll do what is even dishonest in order to get what I'm going to want for myself, what I'm going to gain for myself. Do not be a dishonest person. And my friends, our day and age gives us many opportunities to be dishonest, right? Whether it's to save face or to save money. Opportunities to be dishonest. Don't be that person. So the, the, the deacon's personal character is very important. Look at verse 9 there. You see that his spiritual life is important too. It says, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now remember... Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy's a pastor of a church where some false teachers had infiltrated the church. And Paul here is protecting them from any further infiltration. He says they must be one who holds to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. No more of these people who are shipwrecking their faith. Don't make them leaders in your church only because they have leadership potential. Rather, they are to be people who have their conscience cleansed by God 
and now they're exercising their sensitive conscience so as to avoid offending God. You see that? The word mystery is an important word here. Again, it says they must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. When we use the word mystery in the English language, we're talking about something that's beyond us, something that we don't yet understand. It's a secret, right? Oh, it's a mystery. Do UFOs really exist out there? It's a mystery. But when the New Testament uses the word mystery, it's not talking about a secret. It's talking about a secret that's now been revealed. It used to be a secret, but it's not anymore. And here, the mystery, the secret, was God's plan of salvation. And so it's saying that the deacon must hold to the mystery that's no longer a mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, now I understand what that mystery was. It's not so secretive anymore. And now I live with a clear conscience according to that revelation. I know Christ is my Savior. The mystery is taken away. Verse 10 also then speaks about the deacon's Christian service. So he goes from the man's spiritual life to the Christian service. And it says, and let them also, in other words, like the elders, the deacons must also be tested and proven. Uh, There's three stages of confirmation. First you test them, uh, then you prove them to be who they really are, and then you approve the testing. Uh, The deacon is to be a person who has a proven track record. Not some newcomer to the faith, but rather a person, as we saw earlier, who has godly wisdom. Not a person uh, who simply wants to serve, but a person who has a character as well in order to serve properly. Um, Not just someone who can do the job, but someone who has a character of a person who loves Christ and is seeking after Christ, growing in Christ, maturing in Christ. Yes, but all he wants to do is serve. All she wants to do is serve. Yes, I know. But if you're going to lead in the household of God, you need to have these character traits. And my friends, these character traits are for all of us. All of us. And then verse 10, moral purity. The second half of verse 10 speaks of of, uh, moral purity. It says he is then to be found blameless. If he's found blameless, that is nothing against that person. He has a Teflon character. You could accuse him, but it's not going to stick. That person can serve as a deacon. Again, the Greek word is important there. It it literally refers to a a person who is not being called in, not being called into the office because he did something wrong. Or, Or a person who is not being arraigned as in a courthouse. In other words, guiltless, blameless. Not faultless, blameless then we come to verse 11 and we're going to skip 11 for now but we'll get back to it in just a few moments jump over to verse 12 there we see characteristics for the home life he is to have a good home life and just as we saw earlier with the elder he is to be a one woman man that's how it reads in the Greek 
a one-woman man. He is to manage his household well, he is to manage his children well as well. Uh, it's the same reasoning that we have for elders we have here. If he could not manage his family well, how in the world is he going to help manage the household of God well? If he's got a bad reputation at home, what kind of reputation is he going to give to the church? What, what is kind of reputation will he broadcast to the world if he's got a bad reputation at home? Is this really the transforming power of God? We don't see it in him. Well, then he shouldn't be leading the church. Now let's get back to verse 11. Verse 11 is an interesting verse. I'll read it to you. It says, Their wives likewise must, must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And depending on which translation of the English Bible you use, you'll see a different rendering there. My ESV, as well as the KJV, will read their wives. Uh, the NASB, which is a very good translation, and the NIV reads the woman. And the reason why either woman or wives is listed there is because in the Greek, it's the same word. Gynaika, from where we get the word gynecological. Whether you're talking about woman or wife, it's the same word. And so it's very difficult to translate, correct? So what was Paul meaning when he wrote Gynaika? Was he talking about the deacon's wife, or was he talking about the female deacon? Now keep in mind that in the original language, in the manuscript, in the Greek manuscript, the word or the pronoun there is not there. And so it literally reads women likewise, or wives likewise. And the reason why the pronoun is placed there is simply to make it easier for us to read. It's for proper grammar. Therefore, we read their wives or the women instead of just wives or women. Well, whatever the translation, the standard is the same. Women are to serve even as men are to serve, that's for sure. And she is, as she is serving, to be, once again, a dignified person, not a slanderer. Uh, the word there, again, interesting, it's the word diabolos, from where we get, well, you all know the word diablo, right? And from where we get the English devil. And the word devil means a slanderer, an accuser. The devil's called the devil because he's a slanderer. He's an accuser. And she is not to be slanderous. It's not saying she should not be a devil. It's saying she should not be a slanderer. She is to be sober-minded or temperate in how she reasons, how she acts. And notice there, lastly, it says, she is to be faithful in all things. In other words, she's a trustworthy person, not lax in carrying out whatever responsibilities have been handed to her. Well, getting back to the challenge of that translation here, wives or women, um, it does get rather complicated. Is Paul saying that the wife of the deacon needs to be of such high caliber as him, or is it referring here to women deacons? And of course, there is no such word as deaconess in the original language. And so different Bible students, pastors, scholars, uh, have taken essentially three different approaches to this one verse. And some will say, well, in the church we have then pastors, we have deacons, and then we have 
a whole different group, female deacons. And, and I don't see that here in the text at all. And some will say, well, what it's saying is that the wife of the deacon, she is to possess the same character traits as her husband. That is possible. And some will say, well, the female deacon is simply to work alongside of the male deacon and to serve within the household of God. Here at Hope Church, our understanding is number three. Female deacons are to be part of the serving ministry leadership of the church. That is her function. It's not a matter of authority. It's a matter of serving and functioning as a person who helps, who does, alongside of others. And here's the rationale for those of you who like this sort of thing. Once again, the, the reason why we land there is because the pronoun there is not there. The text does not say their wives or uh, their women. It says wives or women are likewise, suggesting women, deacons, should likewise be. Uh, and again, there is no feminine word for deacon, so it's always in a masculine, and so uh, there's, there's no way for Paul to say uh, the deaconess. Uh, the word is not there. And again, Romans chapter 16.1, we see Phoebe. She was a, a female diaconos, female servant. And we have reason to believe then that she was a deacon in the church. You'll notice, too, that the qualifications for her is just as the qualifications for him, which suggests to me that they're both serving in the same capacity. But most of all, the most convincing to me is the fact that here, in regards to the female deacon, there's a certain set standard of character traits listed for us. However, if you go backwards to the beginning of chapter 3, it never mentions the wives of elders. And certainly wives of elders would be equally important as the wives of deacons. If it doesn't mention the wives of deacons, well then obviously it's not talking about wives, and then it must be talking about women. And so I understand that to say women, deacons, are to be such and such. And that's where we land. And that's how they function. And I find that women are, in many cases, far better in, in their ability to serve than, than men. Certainly more compassionate, more empathetic than men. And they can certainly serve women far better than men can. Much more gently, much more caringly. Well, let's move on, and I want to make one last point this morning. As you look at that very last verse in our text, there you see at verse 13 the results of serving well. What are the results of serving well? It's a twofold result. Verse 13 reads this way. Those servants gain a good standing for themselves. And then number two, they also gain confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. There is a benefit to you in serving well. And here's the first one. A person who serves well in a household of God will gain a good standing for yourself. Now, it's not saying that you're going to have a higher rank within the body of Christ. Ooh, look at him. You're really moving up the ladder. There is no ladder in the household of God. But rather, it is talking here about gaining a greater respect in the church's eyes and in God's eyes. And this is not far into the scriptures. If you look at James chapter 4, verse 10, 1 Peter 5, 6 reads that we are to humble ourselves before the Lord. Why? So that he will exalt us. 
You want to be exalted? Let God exalt you. Don't exalt yourself. Let God exalt you. How? By humbling yourself. Serve. Uh, in 2 Peter 1.10 it says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to, to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. That is to say that your position in Christ is affirmed. Your salvation is affirmed when we genuinely possess these character traits and we are practicing them within the body of Christ. When we possess them and put them into practice, we walk away saying, I know the Lord is transforming me because I know the Lord is in me. Secondly, says that the person who serves well will gain confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. As we are serving the Lord faithfully, as we are exercising these traits that the Holy Spirit is producing in us because we are humbly placing ourselves under and in submission to God's word, we breed biblically-based confidence and assurance in our life in Christ. How do you serve well? By allowing God to produce these traits in you, making this into your character, so that when people think of you, they say, huh, well, there's a sober person. Well, there's a person who doesn't slander. Well, there's a person who knows the word of God. There's a person who's dignified, not double-tongued. As God is changing you and molding you, I assure you, not only will you gain respect in God's eyes, you will gain respect in the world around you, in your church, but also in your workplace, in your school. People will say, well, there's the go-to person. That's one person we can trust. That's the person you need to be. We need to be. People whose characters reflect Jesus Christ. And indeed, you will gain from it. You will serve the Lord well. You will serve yourself well. You will serve the church well. You will serve this world around you well. Well, let me close, my friends. Whereas America runs on Duncan, so they say, (laughs) the church runs on servants. And the deacon is a servant who heads up serving efforts in the modern church. Uh, In a day and age where we have social security, we have disability, we have life insurance, we have SSI, we have food stamps, we have rent assistance, poverty in the extreme is just not common to us, is it? Well, there's poverty, but not to the extreme that we see in other parts of the world or in the days of the scriptures. Uh, We no longer then need necessarily people to be waiting on widows, but we do need people who are serving and reaching into the lives of other people and meeting whatever needs they have. We definitely need that. The Church of Christ runs on God-transformed, Holy Spirit-empowered servants. The needs do persist. In different forms and different degrees, for sure. The function of the deacon is to do just that, to meet those needs, to meet those needs, and to help to lead others meet those needs. That's what we need in the Church of Christ. Men and women who will make it their life goal to possess these traits 
empowered by God, and then minister to the needs of others. We live in a needy world, that's for sure. Become that servant.